Hi everyone, it's Drew. Before we get started, I just want to issue a brief content warning for this week's episode. During the cultural emergency discussion, we get into a very brief discussion of sexual violence and assault that may be sensitive for some listeners. So if that is not something you want to hear, just skip ahead to the end of the episode. Also, while I have your attention, please rate and review and subscribe to Crisis Twink on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps me continue to churn out content for y'all, and hopefully I can make this podcast better, So, because God knows it needs to be better. So um, with all that said, um, let's get into the episode. Hey girlies, welcome to Crisis Twink, the podcast where we ring the alarm about cultural emergencies. Whether it's a flop album, an insane headline, a problematic fave, or just something that needs to be urgently discussed or you'll die, we're going to revive it and make sure it gets the medical assistance it so desperately needs. My name is Drew Haskins, and I'm the only twink who can save a culture in crisis. Joining me today is new metal devotee and second guest, ooh, surprise, music festival producer Jack Price. Hey guys, how are you doing? I don't think you said my name. <laughs> and I'm not, what if I, what if I didn't? What then? No, it's, <laughs> this is new metal devotee Michael Eichner. Um, I, uh, I was so worried about getting names wrong that I just didn't say one entirely. I think that's so beautiful though, right? Like, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. Here at Crisis Tunk, we let the scenes show completely. Like this it's is all how part the of the process. Is. It's all part of the process. And in today's day and age, like you have to show your work, I think. And this 100%. is work. Yes. It's not, harmful work, but it's work. We're not gonna retake this. We're just gonna go go through it. I'm Jeff. You have to. Nice to meet you guys. <laughs> nice to meet you too. Um, I'm happy I said your name at least because you were the guest I know a little bit less than a little bit less than Michael. <laughs> I joke, Michael's a dear friend. Um, but to get your name right at least, that that's a sign of respect. Like that's an honorific title on my end. So I yeah, think getting off to a great start. I uh, hope we get to be deeper friends later on. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I mean, this is the first ever summit of chicago girls basically on this esteemed podcast i am not like i'm a month into my chicago tenure but like we have two like glenbrook north baddies on the pod today which is go spartans indeed (laughs) that i think that's just so elegantly cultural like i think i've basically themed this whole episode to be like a 2004 chicago high school lunchtime bro down basically which is going to be great for my the legion of gay people who listen to this but um i think i think we have a really a real doozy of an up yeah and also just to say how jack and i know each other jack and i have known each other since third grade Mm -hmm. i want to say um and we second but yes um yeah and we listen to music together basically from it was like I think I feel like one of our first big friendship things I went to my first concert with Jack we saw the Decemberists at the Riviera Theater 
Oh my god. What year was this? 2006. Okay, so this was like pre-King is Dead, like conceptual stuff. It was not picaresque. It was the what, the yeah, crane wife. It was that. Oh yeah, the crane wife. It was the crane mm-hmm. wife. They played the. That was an incredible album. Um, and I, Michael, sorry, I'll sometimes say Eichner because everyone used to call him Eichner. Uh, he burned me my first CDs in like sixth or seventh grade, and that helped me become a hipster. Um, from it helped me transition from new metal to hipsterdom, um, which I'm very grateful for because that was not going down a good path. It seems like the new metal to hipster pipeline is a pretty fertile one. That's like it's still running today. Like they didn't shut it down. No Keystone and this pipeline. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I have to say I am not a big I mean we'll get we'll get into new metal way later too but like I I think started the hipster I started hipster first and then I've basically been like backdating my new metal partially through Michael it's partially his fault but like the only new metal song I had on um well songs I guess that I had like on my iPod in rotation growing up were like a lot of like hybrid theory by Lincoln Park which I don't know if you can even call new metal it feels like a little like post new metal yeah we can yeah we can discuss that more but like Lincoln Park was like I, I think it's still the top selling new metal album of yeah all time. I think it yeah it's all it, it went diamond I mean it's everyone had that well album. I think it just celebrated it's like 20 year anniversary like I remember getting into that and Meteora to like a lesser extent because as a closeted gay kid surrounded by straight friends, they were all very into Linkin Park. And I was like, oh, like, I'll keep up. But like, I do really like a lot of songs from both of those albums. And I do think, which once again, we will get to a little bit later. I think Freak on a Leash by Korn is a masterpiece. In Korn's, um, the episode of South Park where Korn shows up and solves a mystery with the, the kids is... Peak TV, golden age of TV. I actually haven't seen that episode. Jack, have you seen that episode? I've seen like every South Park, but that one's not coming into my head right now. Um, it's from like way back in the day. Like, I think it, it. I think it's from 1980, 1998 or 1999. Like, okay. See, I needed to watch that to prepare for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's super not necessarily like I, um, I unfortunately back in January and February rewatched the first eight seasons of South Park on HBO Max just because I was bored, mentally ill, like call it what you will. And I mean, a lot of it does not hold up, obviously, like very much does not hold up. Um, but the corn episode very much does. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that says about my media diet. <laughs> South Park's amazing. You're fine. Um, I think the Radiohead episode is probably my favorite, like music one with Scott Tennerman. Incredible, (laughs) really, really incredible, really dark, but like one of the funniest episodes of TV I think I've ever seen for sure. With the real Radiohead dudes doing the voices, (laughs) I can't. I can't believe they did that. Like someone over there must have called in like the biggest favor to get Tom York to do a speak role about they, had, that. they were into it. They must say pussy in. on Comedy Central. <laughs> like, <laughs> but 
Um, all right, I think it's time for our first segment. So we are gonna play Go Call the Governor. So I'm gonna present you two with three cultural scenarios from recent and or ancient history. And you're going to decide whether or not the governor needs to be called. There are no wrong answers here, but your choice is binary. Does the governor need to be called or not? Are y'all ready to play? Wait, no, what does that even mean? I'm sorry. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so I'm not equipped to answer that question. Um, basically, I'm, I'm going to say a scenario, like something that happened in current events. Like, what does that mean? Wow, we really it's are like an authority, an authority person who's like needs to like come in and intervene. You're like, yeah. this right. cannot continue. Some, someone needs like, to step need an in. intervention here. That sort okay. of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got it. I'm locked and loaded. Thank you. And I hope this helps for the legion of people who don't understand this segment on a week to week basis too. Like we finally have an answer this, <laughs> this, for this question. Okay, okay, first scenario though. Hopefully this is a pretty easy one. So I think we can... If you have any further questions, this should be a good clarification um, round. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss's band plays their first live gig. Does the governor need to be called? And if you are not familiar with the Winklevoss twins, they are the um, douchey guys from the social network who like tried to buy Facebook. I don't remember what they did actually, but they have a band. They have a ska band. So my answer is no the governor does not need to be called i think this is a great scenario where we just need to let the free market work itself out and if there is interest in the winklevise ska band uh great i'm so happy for them if there's not well oh well i i'm not the i i know that there's a big crossover between the emo and ska world. I'm not personally yeah. a ska head myself, but I wish the Winklevi well on all of their endeavors. Yeah, are you a, oh, oh, no, I was going to ask Jack, are you a ska, a ska head? I don't know what they call themselves. No, I, I'm not. I mean, I've been to some shows. I've seen ska. It's fun to be in a in a ska mm -hmm. crowd. It's a fun show. They're it's very positive and uplifting and jazz influenced. But uh, <laughs> but no, I was, three adjectives: fun, positive, <laughs> and jazz influenced. Like, trying to be eloquent here. It is um, no, that is that's a beautiful, beautiful descriptor. Um, but I'm not calling the governor either. I have pretty much the same reasoning, except I would add that. In, if they flop, it'll be really funny and we'll get great content out of that. And then the Winklevi will just be in the headlines for funny reasons again. And uh, I like that too. I like that as much as a success. So um, free market, all about it. Let's go. I definitely support like creative endeavors, any and all creative endeavors, like <laughs> call it sappy, but I do believe that art has the power to change the world, <laughs> even if it's coming from the, the Winklevi. Um, I do think it's funny that they've chosen like ska as their vehicle of expression. Like that's I I I guess that's like chain smokers vibes from those those two. Like <laughs> accurate. No, it's very, very odd, but okay, let's move on to the next cultural scenario. Disturbs cover of sound of silence. Does the governor need to be called? 
Yes, it's horrible. It is trash. Mm. I mean, and what, so I guess taking a step back, I, during the pandemic, I started listening to two, two metal podcasts, the POD cast and Roach Coast. And I don't remember which one said this, but I think on the, I think it was the POD cast. They were talking about how that song is like played at funerals and is like popular, kind of like popular for certain funerals. And like, I, I like literally could not, I would, <laughs> I would like to run out of the room if, if that happened at a funeral. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you take that song seriously at this point. Like Sound of Silence is a great song. Like the original Simon and Garfunkel version, but like, I mean, Disturb, isn't it from like a literal video game soundtrack? Am I making that up? It, I, I'm not sure, but I, I mean, I think it was released, it was eventually released on one of their albums. Got it. Well, I think it's like technically their biggest hit ever too, which I think is really crazy. Well, then that, me and go on. that makes me embarrassed to say I haven't heard it. Uh, granted, I don't follow Disturbed very closely, but as far as whether I'm calling the governor, I'd say the phone is like off the hook and I'm ready to like dial. <laughs> but because I haven't heard it, I do take Michael's opinion uh, very, very gravely and seriously that it probably does need to be called, but I, I still want to hear it for myself. You know, I do love the original song a lot and they yeah. probably butchered it. So, uh, but, you know, could be good. It, yeah, I think like, I mean, I'm not a big fan of like serious, slow covers of classic songs. Like the new like House of Gucci trailer starts with, like a slowed down, quote unquote, spooky cover of like Heart of Glass by Blondie that I'm like, who asked for this? Or like the Beyonce, like Crazy in Love slow down song from, uh, is, I can't remember. It was, it was Fifty Grey's Shades Cast. of Grey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it, yeah. Was, yeah the, yeah, it was Fifty Shades of Grey. Not, yeah, not, I don't know who's still asking for that, but I think it's one of those inertia things where like, well, this movie did the slow cover. And so now we just have to continue it because it's a trend. It's like, it's an easy nostalgia shorthand to like, oh, like familiar song, eerily done. Like, it's like a little bit highbrow and lowbrow at the same time. Like, cheap, cheap reaction, I think. I do really like Donnie Darko. However, that is probably not oh, yeah. the greatest legacy for that movie. Just that every movie has to have like the slow, serious cover of a pop song. Who's the Who's the guy who did that cover? I don't remember. Like Gary Jules or something. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I remember. I unfortunately I have not seen Donnie Darko, which is like a ginormous cultural blind spot. Um, call him the governor. A, <laughs> no, please, I like the, I every every segment I get the governor is called on me for something, and this can be that today. Like. As like a movie lover and a Jake Gyllenhaal head, like what? definitely a huge blind spot for me. But okay. the, I do know that cover very intimately from like, like every season of American Idol, someone did that slow cover. Like I think Adam Lambert was like the big one and he screamed his way through it. Like <laughs> completely screamed his way through it. But Yikes. <laughs> yeah, big, big yikes, but um. Yeah, I don't know. That's not my favorite Tears for Fears song either, but I will watch the movie to like, I'm sure in context, it hits different. It hits it's the whole different. soundtrack of that movie also. It's not just Mad World, like 
every song is immaculately chosen i think like very 80s very nostalgic not it's that a, it's, 80s, but it doesn't but still <laughs> yeah it's a good it's a good soundtrack like a period soundtrack because sometimes with some of these movies that try to do period soundtracks they just shove in every single popular song from like that given time period mm -hmm. but you could tell that all of the songs were chosen with care and they weren't always choosing everyone's biggest hit they it really felt like they were trying to match the scene so yeah it the donnie darko soundtrack is quite good no that that that's good like i saw cruella a few months ago and the soundtrack for that was like so obvious like 60s 70s like you got like um i want to be your dog which is like so on the nose for a movie about Dalmatians, like Sympathy for the Devil, like Time of the Season by the Zombies. It was truly like, I get that it's a kid's movie and that it's going to introduce some of these songs to like a new generation or whatever. But like, I don't know. It was just, it was, it felt like a karaoke lineup. Like. A hundred, I felt the same way while watching it. Yeah. I felt, big. I thought it was like just Disney flexing like the amount of money that it could put into a music budget um and oh, yeah. i enjoyed it as a result but uh but yeah it wasn't like it wasn't like curation like <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not like i'm not asking for like kim king crimson deep cuts or whatever <laughs> but like i uh it it definitely i don't know just very obvious but all right last cultural scenario for the chicago folks out there deep dish pizza does the governor need to be called never Never. Yeah, don't call. I mean, I so I'm now dairy free, but I do love a deep dish pizza. Mm -hmm. You've always been dairy. Well, you've been like you've had a casual on and off relationship with dairy. I mm -hmm. say, it's it's a it's permanently off. It's permanent now. That's sad. Yeah, I, every time I'm in town, um, I live in LA, but I'm in in Chicago right now. Yeah, I mean, deep dish pizza. Come on, Drew. Which ones have you had? So I am a long time Lou's fan. Um, I like, we passed through Chicago every summer growing up and we usually got Lou's or Geno's. I am out of love with Geno's. My go-to I think is Pequod's by and large. Um, but that's, I guess, more of like a Detroit, <laughs> this is like, is this interesting for anyone? Um, a Detroit pan pizza like kind of thing instead of like a traditional deep dish, but like, out of like the traditional stuff, Lou's is definitely my number one. Then Giordano's, then Gino's. And if I'm, I feel like I'm missing a bunch too, but like. I agree um, with Lou's being number one. Yeah. Yeah, Lou's is great. Pequod's is great if you're in the area of Pequod's, but there's only like two locations mm -hmm. uh, last time I checked. Lou's you can get basically all over the greater Chicago area. Huge fan, huge fan. I mean, oh, it's. And like, we're recording this um, the weekend of Lollapalooza and I was out and about yesterday and I heard like a crowd of girls in like full like butterfly tops, like side ponytails, body glitter. They were like, where's Luz? Like we're, they were looking for like the River North Luz. And I'm like, well, that I'm glad you're making a pit stop. <laughs> like, good luck with that later while you're watching Miley Cyrus. But like, that sounds like a fun way to kick off your to pregame with Luz, like yeah. you shouldn't plan to do much after deep dish pizza no it really puts you on the couch um 
<laughs> really, really hits different. Um, all right, on that note, we are going to take a quick break and then we will be right back with this episode's cultural emergency. And we are back. Let's move on to this episode's cultural emergency. Michael and Jack, what are y'all rushing to the ER today? We are rushing Woodstock 99 to the ER today. So to to provide a bit of context for people who may not be familiar with what Woodstock 99 was, it was a four-day music festival which took place in Rome, New York on July 22nd through 25th, 1999. It was meant to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the original Woodstock Festival. And the headliners were Bush, Metallica, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, among other bands. It's estimated at at least 250,000 people attended. And specifically why we're talking about it now is because Woodstock 99 Peace, Love and Rage is a documentary which was just released on HBO Max. It was directed by Garrett Price, who previously directed the film Love and Tosha, which was a documentary about Anton Yelchin. It was also executive produced by Bill Simmons via Ringer Films. And we're going to get into a little bit more about why specifically it was a cultural emergency. But I think the top line is that it was not, it did not go well, this festival. There were two deaths, eight reported sexual assaults. 44 arrests and upwards of a thousand people needing medical attention throughout the weekend. Um, And it was something that was very much talked about in the context of being a cultural emergency after the festival, which we can get into more. Uh, So that is what we are bringing to the ER today. And I would also like to add that it was not only a cultural emergency, but a logistical one. Um, As a Mm. festival producer myself, I would like to shed light on many um, oversights that were seemingly minor, but catastrophically major, Um, but we'll get into that. (laughs) No, this is a rich topic. Like, so we all watched this documentary within the past week, and I was not, I had heard like kind of the basics about this festival. Like I knew it was a total fiasco. Like, I mean, I guess Woodstock 94 went well, but like they tried doing another Woodstock two years ago that got canceled mere days before the festival. So this like after the 1969 one, it's just been all downhill from here basically. Like, and I, I guess like I mean I I haven't watched like a lot of the original documentaries about the original Woodstock either but like that that demo at least that music was so much more not to be reductive like hippy dippy with like the like Jimi Hendrix like Joan Baez like that kind of folky stuff like and one of the things I thought was really interesting about the documentary is how much of a contrast they established between like the programming for 1999 in 1969, which is music that you guys are a little bit more well-versed in than I am. Yeah, so I think now this would be a good time to explain a little bit more about what new metal was Mm -hmm. in case someone is not familiar. So I'm gonna read from Wikipedia here. It's a subgenre of alternative metal, which combines element of heavy metal music with hip hop, alternative rock, funk, industrial, and grunge. Key bands that you might've heard of that are, would be considered new metal are Corn, Limp Biscuit, Deftones, Linkin Park, Slipknot. 
And it originated in the early 90s with Korn's 1994 self-titled album being an early touchstone, peaked in popularity around the time of the festival, and then its popularity declined dramatically shortly thereafterwards. Mm -hmm. So Drew, I made you a mixtape of new metal songs. I guess, yes. what, was, what was your impressions of the songs that you listened to? So it's, I would, I, I like, I would consider myself a rock fan, mostly through the lens of alt rock and emo. This stuff is a little aggro for me as someone who's never really been into like metal all that much. Um, most of my new metal touchstones, as I like said earlier, are like Linkin Park and Korn. But some of the stuff you sent me, like from like Slipknot, um, Pantera, that is music I don't think I would have ever sought out. And it definitely is not for me. Um, I mean, we can get in, we can, I, I did think it was really interesting. Like the documentary shed a lot of light on like the demographic of this festival being mostly like 24 year old white straight guys. I guess my question before we kind of get into kind of like the audience and maybe some of the logistics leading up to the festival, could you understand why it was popular? Like, did you get it? Yeah, I definitely, because like, especially from the hip hop standpoint, like I'm pretty well versed in like eighties and nineties hip hop. So like, I can see how that culture radiated outward and basically got like, this is productive, but like Confederate flagified into something that was kind of more palatable for a white audience, especially like the kid rock stuff, um, who I'm pretty familiar with just from like other stuff and like crazy town, weirdly, I was like, okay, like I can kind of see how this is basically just repurposing rap for like, not even frat boys, really. I don't know. I like that was the thing I was like, they kept saying frat in the film. And I was like, I, I don't know any like frat guy at the time who probably would have like enjoyed this. It feels like very like angry middle America, though. And I don't I think, that's not I'm not trying to be offensive saying that. That's just like kind of the vibe I got. Yeah, I think one thing that the documentary struggled with is that it kind of portrayed new metal as being like something ripped from the gates of hell like from mm -hmm. satan himself and like very just like very toxic and i guess what i would say is that this was still very commercial music and like i would argue pop oriented i mean even you listen to stuff like slipknot um and like there are still hooks in there um and so what like one thing i thought about kind of like the fact i guess about the documentary is it didn't really establish why new metal was so popular and maybe I think that kind of leads into why maybe the promoters were so unprepared for like the audience that came yeah it's just that this was a very commercial genre of music that was very popular at the time and so maybe there's just kind of like misaligned expectations in terms of like how many people really were into this music and what that would mean for like the festival environment no, that that totally makes sense. Like Jack, you have a little bit more like ex like hands-on experience with like the programming and producing of like festivals proper. Are those usually like pretty explicitly commercially dictated, or is it more like taste curation? Look, I mean, well, today's festival landscape—you've got genre festivals and you've got pop festivals. Mm -hmm. 
in this case, you, you know, look at Coachella. It's a pop festival. Lollapalooza, it's a pop festival. They're going to book, they're going to book whoever's popular. That is what Woodstock 99 attempted to do. They booked who was popular and they helped, they had MTV's help in that. MTV had created the culture around these bands or at least um, fostered it, if not, you know, really supported it. Um, but these days, I mean, I don't think it's fair to say that like any genre of music dictates like whether a crowd will truly riot and like burn stuff and rob mm -hmm. like rob ATMs and like, you know, go nuts because the idea of a music festival for an aggressive genre is controlled chaos. Like I, the festivals I throw, um, Lost Lands Festival and Bass Canyon Festival are heavy dubstep, right? This is the dance music interpretation of heavy metal in a sense that became popular in North America in the early 2010s, right? Mm -hmm. um, but our fans are totally classy. Like they're on the rail, they're headbanging, they're so into this music, they're sweating, they are just moshing uh, respectfully. And, uh, but these are not problems that happen at our events. The secu security always comes up to us after shows and says how well behaved and, and classy our fans are. And I'm not just saying that to like pat the back of the genre that I like work most closely with, but like, I don't want to start off our conversation by demonizing a genre of music and then immediately correlating it to behavior of a crowd. I think the behavior right. of the crowd has a lot more to do in this case, with the poor organization of the event itself. Yeah, so. 100%. I mean, genre demonization is such a late 90s, early 2000s phenomenon too. Like, I mean, you know, there was that whole movement at the time where like rap music was like fostering like gang violence and gun violence and stuff. And then like, the I always think about Marilyn Manson as like kind of the nexus of outrage basically over like, you know, song like topics that were being sung about and like the way he like presented himself so provocatively and like obviously he ended up being like really sh shitty in like myriad other ways but like at the time I was like oh like that seems this is like a really passe controversy just from like a musical standpoint because you go back and like listen to those songs and watch the videos and those aren't even that bad so yeah I definitely had an issue with how the documentary was like this music is just like a way for people to channel like physical rage when as Craig Jenkins and Vulture so eloquently put it or not eloquently but like so astutely put it like only four of the bands on the lineup could actually be classified as like new metal in a traditional sense yeah, yeah. you think how many corn shows went well Mm -hmm. that whole decade how many corn should like you know corn through many many successful concerts before that one <laughs> and jack maybe do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what you saw in the documentary in terms of how the promoters went about organizing things and kind of what were red flags to you because i definitely i mean it, i think it's the documentary is pretty clear that like the promoters fucked up in a myriad of ways mm -hmm. but i i think it would benefit from your perspective like I, cause I, I guess what I wasn't always sure is that like shit happens with event planning, but it's like, how much is just like, you know, shit happens with event planning and how much of it is like bad preparation. Yeah, man. I saw a lot of the red flags before the documentary, like revealed how they resulted. So like the first one was the, uh, 
the little volunteer political organizers giving out candles. Mm-hmm. I was like that. I immediately was like, no, never do that. Oh my God. Do not give out candles to your fans. Like you're going to have fires. You just will. So, I mean, that was number one. Um, obviously that did come true. Um, let's see. I've got a whole list of things. Um, okay. So your security team is called the peace patrol. Never brand your security. Mm-hmm. Team. They're supposed <laughs> to be very serious people um who enforce rules they're not your friend they have to like do things like take away your drugs and your um you know anything they're not supposed to have mm-hmm. weapons um and unfortunately they were taking away like it's they were saying taking away a lot of food and drink which is like what what would have helped nourish some people who felt maybe underserved by the festival. yeah that really jumped out to me like the the branding especially really jumped out to me i was like oh you guys might have well have called yourself the cuddle bunch or something <laughs> like it's yeah. not not good yeah and I, I think what what also stood out to me is that it was very clear that everyone knew that this like the security was undermined from the beginning mm-hmm. and that no one meant was meant to respect them and I think that manifested in itself in the in the sense that there were just a lack of I mean there was not much security given the amount of people who were at the festival I mean they were understaffed throughout the weekend and it also comes down to other things like in some of the article contemporary articles I read they were talking about how members of the peace patrol were excessively subjecting women to body searches Mm -hmm. and when you get into like later in the weekend or later in the documentary where they're talking about the sexual assaults that took place over the weekend you know, it just creates an environment where there are no consequences and the the security team that is supposed to be keeping you safe is not, A, not going to do that, or B, like they might also be participating in the bad stuff which is happening. Right. Yeah, I mean, it security is hard. Staffing security for a festival of that size, 250,000 people. Yeah. You have no idea who you're hiring. You're hiring Johnny Local off the street and like sometimes he's good sometimes he's awful but you no one's vetting him you're just you're subcontracting through so many different other companies that the guys on the ground you 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 really can't control and this isn't a festival that happens year to year it's a festival that's just happening once right mm-hmm. so any consequences of anything bad aren't going to affect your sales for the next year right so they're just like they're like all right we got bodies let's put them out there and see how it goes they you know and that's a lot of that's a lot of the other problem like zooming out like because it's a one-time event and like their brand is basically bulletproof you know Woodstock 2022 could come out next year and sell out if it you know if it wanted to the brand itself is fine but for one year they just you know they don't care that they booked it in one of the hottest uh hottest times of year in that region of New York where people are Mm -hmm. just going to be sweating the whole time um I think they said there were a thousand medical transports per night yeah which you know, that is flat out embarrassing. And if, if an event today gets even more than like, I don't know, like a Lollapalooza size of event, if they have more than like 50 transports in a night or a hundred, like that would make headlines. This mm-hmm. is a thousand a night. Like they, their, their, their medical on site must have a not had any doctors or B just not had enough um, supplies <clears throat> to actually serve people. I mean, the, the guy who died um, sounds like they, it, they he died because they tried to 
um, put the electric paddles on his chest to like, cause they thought he was ODing, but he was actually just dehydrated. Yeah. Right? Is that what they said? Yeah. Like, yeah he had hyperthermia. Mm-hmm. Like the medical, the, the medical was a joke and they were clearly just transporting everyone who they didn't know what to do with to the local hospital. And I mean, that's, that's like an events today would get sued out of their mind just, just for that alone. I guess uh, I have a question for you about like the choice of venue. I mean, do you think it was possible to run a safe festival at that venue or would you have like, I mean, again, you weren't, obviously you weren't there, but like, <clears throat> all I know you, about, you, yeah, all go ahead. About that venue is what the documentary said. I, I, I think on paper, it sounds like a good venue well, it has a bunch of indoor space. It has a big uh, wall around it. Like it seemed fine on paper, but so you know. I, I did a little bit of extra research about the site after the documentary. Apparently, it was a former Superfund site, which for those who may not know, is like an, it's a government designated environmental disaster zone. So there was some sort of like toxic waste, basically, that had been dumped at that site over a 20 year period. And then I think five to 10 years before the festival, they had just paved over it with asphalt. So there were also like scientists alleged that there were like chemical issues with the like ground to like the heat, like creating like vapors and stuff that also could have exacerbated some of the medical issues that were that like people had like experienced like while they were at the festival. So like and yeah. they knew that too, because it was like a former like military base and like, I think an incarceration center as well. So like, mm. yeah, mm. that's crazy. Heat makes everything worse. That's, yeah. that's the thing too, is if you have a bunch of people who do X amount of drugs and then a bunch of people who do that, that same amount of drugs, but at like above 95 degrees Fahrenheit, like, uh, man, just the amount of medical emergencies that happen. Yeah. In the heat is it's it's massive and then by like by day two it's the terrain by day two the terrain is just like shit and asphalt so like it's not you know it's just not like a healthy environment for people yeah like every local department was probably completely embarrassed and angry at the organizers every the health department sanitation fire obviously like the sheriff, like the state troopers, like in any normal festival, you have to keep all those local constituencies happy in the state as well, Mm -hmm. because you're hoping to come back next year and do it again. These guys clearly did not care. All they cared about was making it to the end so they wouldn't have to refund anybody. One thing that really shocked me, actually maybe the most shocking part of the documentary to me was how much the organizers to this day like basically are trying to absolve themselves from any culpability for what happens. Like, especially that John Cher, one of the two, I was like, the shit he was saying by the end, I was like, I can't believe it. Like They've been singing the same tune for 20 years. I mean, I was reading, even in 1999, I mean, John Cher apparently said that he blamed the rioting on cults of a indeterminate origin, mm-hmm. which I think just shows that he's trying to pass off blame to anybody. I, I think, so I thought one thing that he, a point that he kept making, which actually I would want to ask you about Jack, he kept harping on Fred Durst and also an Anthony Kiedis to an extent, not being able to calm down the crowd. Um, like 
I think at one point, or maybe it was the mayor of Rome, he was saying that we were trying to get Anthony to calm down the crowd, but he wouldn't, or he wasn't able to do it. And I guess my, like my, my thought is, and maybe you can confirm this, is that if you're at the point where you're, you have to ask an artist to calm down the crowd, it seems like things are already lost, right? Like, I'm not sure what impact Fred Durst would have had. And especially not Anthony Kiedis, of all people, too. Like, that guy, in 1999, that guy was yacked out of his damn gourd, like, every day of the week. (laughs) Like, he's not, he's not going to be calming anyone down. He can't calm himself down. Yeah, I mean, the difference, though, Fred Durst played day one, and day one, yeah, that was day two. Okay. Even still, I mean, day two was rough, but day by the time Red Hot Chili Peppers, they were one of the last bands on day three, right? Like by Mm -hmm. then, that was totally a point of no return. Um, The fires were already burning when he started playing fire, right? Like (laughs) it did not matter at that point in time. The, The only choice that the organizers had was to shut down the festival telling the performer to like try to control this situation mm-hmm. that is not their job at all like they are there to entertain uh you're supposed to be hiring lots of other qualified people to control every other element of the event to support the music not the other way around <laughs> and and this was something i i guess i'll just add that i think changed the trajectory of limp biscuits career in some respects because not only did I mean, John Cher was like pretty outspoken about how he blamed Fred Durst, but then also um, Kurt Loder from MTV News Mm -hmm. also was pretty outspoken on TV saying that Fred Durst was the reason why like like things were out of control. And I guess just to provide some context about what happened afterwards, I mean, they like that became part of Limp Bizkit's narrative that they started the riots when that wasn't really, I mean, that wasn't true. Um, and but they did work it into their narrative as a band. Uh, their video, their video afterwards, the name of which is escaping me right now, um, was in reference to the Woodstock riots. I would argue that they probably reached their commercial peak with the next album, Chocolate Starfish, um, and Hot Dog Flavored uh, Water, as a result awful. of the no. What's that? They called an album Chocolate Starfish. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> um, yeah, Chocolate Starfish and Hot Dog Flavored Water. I mean, that sold over a million copies week one. And I mean, it was part of their notoriety. And, you know, you could say that the commercial performance, I mean, they were kind of on that trajectory anyway, but then like Woodstock 99 supercharged it. But even like in in interviews in 2014 that I read, Fred Durst is still like pretty upset about how he was treated and I think honestly rightfully so I mean he's still saying that like Kurt Loder and the promoters blamed any everything on them when it was not their responsibility Mm -mm. to sort of counterpoint that he did play a song called break shit and actually encouraged people to break shit yeah here's what okay so here's what I'll say to that here's what I'll say to that (laughs) I think that so I did watch like the entire Limp Biscuit performance and speaking of which a lot of these performances on are on YouTube, although they're pretty edited in the sense that like you don't get a lot of the crowd and you don't get a lot of in-between banter. Well, I can see why like you can't get half of the crowd because as the documentary so eloquently points out, there are, it is a sea of titties basically. Yeah. <laughs> like you could yeah. do any crowd shots without like, it would be like bars every other pixel basically like yeah so what i will say first 
Fredurst does not seem like, again, like based on kind of what I know, it doesn't seem like he's the most spontaneous person in the world. I mean, it doesn't seem like he's coming up with a lot of things off the top of his head. And I will say just from my impression of the performance, ev- almost everything he said, except for a comment about Alanis Morissette, sounded pre-rehearsed in the sense that like, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of bands will pre-rehearse banter and then just like do the same shit every night, which is like fine. And like nothing, I guess like nothing stuck out to me as being like, like as like in response to the crowd. It was just that like, he was doing it in an environment that was already like fucked up. And like, I, I, I think I agree with you. Like, I don't know how else you, like it's not very punk to introduce a song called Break Shit by being like, don't actually break shit, but anyway, here's break shit. Like, <laughs> it's just the spiel that you do. Right, yeah. I'm overall, I'm overall on Fred's side of this one. Uh, the crowd was clearly at a tipping point. The slightest like little flick would have pushed them over the yeah. end, right? Um, and, and that's clearly the type of music that was booked was if you are on the edge of rioting, like now, this, might, I, this might cause a riot. At that point at the night, Jewel could have started the riot. Like, it didn't matter who, like, Foolish Games and everything's just, like, up in smoke. Like, right. it just seemed so miserable. Um, I don't know. I I get, I'm trying to think of, like, other things that really, like, stood out to me. Like, the main critique I had about the document, or the documentary in general was the way it tried to set up this parallel between the rage exhibited at that festival and general Trump era white straight male malaise. I thought there's an argument that you can make there, but I think it was kind of a stretch and kind of rushed when they actually got to it. And I'm interested to hear what you guys think about that. Yeah, I thought that a lot. So I, I thought like, in terms of how I thought about the doc, I thought that the archival footage and how they assembled the story in terms of setting up situations and then paying them off later in the weekend, I thought that was pretty well done, which I think is a testament to just being working with the archival footage. And also I found that this, I thought that this documentary was probably pretty heavily indebted to a spin article that came out shortly after the the festival, which had a very similar kind of chronological structure. And so I thought that part of it was very well done. The cultural commentary I thought was extremely hit or miss. And particularly with that sort of trying to set up anger, I thought that like kind of like how they were characterizing the mood of the crowd was like interesting. Specifically like there were things like the 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 clip of Fight Club and the Matrix. I was like, I don't really know what this is serving. Yeah. Um, and I guess like what kind of like on a related point, one of the things that they talked, they kept harping on Kurt Cobain quite a bit, um, kind of like setting him up as an antithesis in the sense that he was this enlightened individual, and then like the music that like came afterwards was like just toxic and angry. And I just found that strange because essentially what they're trying to say is that this music took the aesthetic of Nirvana and then just kind of like bastardized it. But like, I didn't, and they they made it sound like Kurt Cobain was like this very didactic figure, which he was 
I guess like as a person, but his like music didn't really come across that like like that. And right. so I, overall, I just thought the point was very confused, and I don't, I didn't really see how it connected to kind of like what happened like at the festival. Like it just wasn't as clear. No, there. I think there's definitely a better way to establish John. Trying to say that Woodstock. Sorry, you got. Um, I I felt like they were just trying to say that Woodstock '94 went pretty well, and then '99 yeah. like did not, roughly because of that. You know, maybe because of that shift in what bands became popular after Kurt Cobain died. Um, but I I would also agree with you guys that like the relevance of. Like, I think documentaries that look at the past often feel like they have to say, why is this relevant today? Yeah. And documentaries awkwardly straddled between doing that and also not doing it. Like, they didn't fully commit to it. They didn't, like, bring in footage of the January 6th riots and been like, well, here's those people 20 years later, potentially. I don't know. Like, you could have made that stretch argument, maybe. Um, but I, I like just honestly looking at it for what it was as uh, a period in time. I don't think... Um, I think music festivals have gotten a lot better organized since then. Yeah. Uh, as well as music entertainment as a whole. Um, I mean, it, it was, uh, it's, it's interesting to learn from. And uh, I hope that no, <laughs> no festival makes these mistakes again, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I thought there were, I, I thought they, they tried to squeeze in Coachella at the end. And I thought what they could have done is like, I mean, honestly, if they wanted to go in this direction, they could have just talked about how to make music festivals safer or like kind of like talk about that. Because I do think there were elements of Woodstock 99 that very much continued after Woodstock 99. Yeah. I think specifically what I'm thinking of is there's a part where Maureen Callahan, who's the spin journalist, was talking about how essentially the rave tent was cynically shoved in or from her perspective cynically shoved in when the rest of the lineup didn't really reflect that and when she was talking about a stage that was meant to cater to like a specific genre of music as like a like in relation to everything else it kind of reminded me of the perry stage at Lollapalooza, right because you know the like the rest of the programming at Lollapalooza is very much like more pop or rock kind of yeah. like depending on the year and perry's was very much like the electronic like this is the environment I, for electronic music. i think that's a pretty standard setup for most festivals these days like even coachella has a pretty dedicated rave tent these days and i also didn't i mean i can't speak to like the genre synthesis at the time but like i don't think it's so outlandish to have like quote-unquote rave music and like new metal and alt rock on the same bill like i mean Maybe, I think even in 1999, like there are a lot of acts like KLF and Fatboy Slim who were blending those in Moby. I mean, Moby even too, though. Every time he popped up as a talking head in this doc, I was like, get this clown out of here. All oh these God, people Moby, were I... like, <laughs> those like the neck tattoos were driving me off the wall. But um, no, like it's those groups were blending like, metal rock like industrial rock and like edm quote unquote pretty well like i mean whatever like you know it's very contemporary for that time period but it's not like unheard of to have i think there's like more through line there than like the documentary gave it credit for like and also like i think it kind of 
it got like people were definitely like on drugs to a great extent and that tent too like i'm sure you can make that assumption like it's an edm tent at a music festival like and to not talk about that and just allied over it seemed a little disingenuous in terms of the argument it was trying to make yeah the, the sahara tent at coachella has been around since like very early coachella yeah. it's very established the problem, the thing is like ravers need a festival where they feel like they're welcome and accepted and they can have a good time. And I, it seemed like from the very beginning, Woodstock 99 was not going to be that. Um, I mean, it was MTV driven, you know, the, the ad dollars were more going towards billing uh, the main stage acts of corn uh, and Slipknot, but not probably as many ad dollars going into the Moby set. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I did. So I do agree with Moby's point that like attention to detail is like a big thing. And the fact that he was left off the plywood board or whatever was like, it, like it, it is sometimes like a signal of like larger problems. However, it is very funny to make the centerpiece of your argument that like I was like, I don't know, it was like, it was a little funny. Well, that's yeah. just Moby in a nutshell these days. I mean, like. Yeah, also I will, I do want to sidebar about Moby for a second. Um, I felt like the doc was very much portraying him as a voice of reason and mm -hmm. an enlightened person. And I did find it, I don't really mean this as a gotcha, but I did find a contemporary quote from him in like when he was talking about Woodstock 99. And he said, in the dance area where there were no rock bands, the vibe was terrific. Unfortunately, I didn't get laid, which is not like a damning quote but I think when watching a documentary you always want to be mindful of what people's motivations are for appearing well, and like and this also came after like he's basically had not three years of nothing but bad press between like um his Silver Lake restaurants and properties like their labor rights violations the Natalie Portman shit his Lana Del Rey <laughs> encounter which is still very funny to me um, I mean, he I, he definitely did this to like get some good sound bites out there for sure. Like, I'm not surprised that he was not, um, you know, being maybe 100% true to his own version of events. Though, to be fair, I also, I only thought, I thought the only good artist confessional who really had something to say constructive was actually Jewel. Yeah, I also liked Jonathan Davis too. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, he was good. Yeah, I thought Jonathan Davis had a pretty uh, like level head about it and was like very, I think, I guess convincing in the sense of why he was so frustrated about how it was received. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, I did appreciate hearing from, from him. Well, he just always seems like a really good dude too. Like, although like they did so many core and retrospectives interviews a few years ago with like the 20th anniversary of whatever that album with Freak on a Leash is. And um, no, all those, all those interviews, he just comes across as a very like Zen, very aware person. Like the Offspring guys, I thought like, I mean, they didn't really have anything to say in this documentary, but like the vibe seemed like pretty solid. Yeah, they were good. My yeah. favorite, my favorite artist confessional, quote unquote, was actually um, I forget the singer from Creed. Uh, God damn. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. he like that moment where he's like, you know, we brought out Robbie Krieger from the Doors as like an ode to 
to Woodstock of, of the young, you know, older years, like that I thought encapsulated like the whole, not the whole problem, but like the, one of the core problems of Woodstock 99, <laughs> you've got a band thinking that like this crowd even cares at all about the doors. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Scott, <laughs> Scott Stapp has never really been the most in touch um, person right. on planet Earth. <laughs> But hey, Krita um, definitely had a name for themselves for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you got to but just them just showing up and bringing, trotting this, this old Doors guitarist out. Well, they, they so, also showed the footage of Bush, like, leading that chant, which I had never, I mean, I've never seen the documentary, so I, I had no context for that. And I, it seemed like no one else did there, too. Mm-mm. No, I mean, I don't remember who said it in the documentary, but, like, or no, it was maybe Dave Holmes, who I thought was like out of like the, the quote unquote like writers and analysts who were on the panel of Talking Heads. I thought he was easily the most incisive one. He was like, why are you pandering to nostalgia for something that happened 30 years ago that none of these people will remember? Like a lot of the documentary works about Woodstock 69 were not widely accessible to people to view until like the early to mid 2000s because they were all art house films basically too so like it's just all anecdotal shit about a style of music that is at that point completely dated and like the Wyclef Jean national anthem too like was like obviously a very clear callback to the Jimi Hendrix one but like I mean just who who would have cared no offense like no offense to Wyclef yeah so like if I had to really zoom out the problem with this festival was poor understanding of who your audience is on top of awful organization and infrastructure uh I mean you I didn't even get to talk about the water situation yet Uh, not that I (laughs) I mean the the porta pot how did you like those porta potties well the thing is, porta potties are relatively simple. You ha- you just have to have a crew that's dedicated to cleaning them out multiple times a day. That's just you just if I mean yes, that's a simple thing they could have fixed. But the whole infrastructure of like the water being brought in for filling bottles and then the showers uh, and then the selling of drinking water for four dollars, which in today's dollars is what like six or seven dollars. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Like poor sanitation and poor hydration are a real bad combo. But so, yeah, there were two additional anecdotes that I learned in my research. The first is that it was a little unclear. I, I didn't quite get the mechanics, but essentially, John Sure had an ownership interest in the company that was subcon like su- like selling the water to oh. the vendors. Um, and so there was basically no flexibility on the pricing from a vendor perspective. They had to take, and even when like the the company was Ogden Corporation, and even when Ogden Corporation ran out of water and they were bringing in other water, they still had to be sold at like four dollars. There was no flexibility in that regard. And then the other thing, mm-hmm. kind of in line with the water, is that apparently the water had E. coli after a certain point, which only added to the uh disgusting atmosphere the shit factor if the you shit, will. yeah the shit factor yeah that is vile like completely vile oh yeah, and then i like, guess another anecdote which i heard in my research was so I, I this was from the pod cast and one of the hosts brian quinby actually went to woodstock 99 and he said that 
he saw a woman essentially like laying around in the mud, like playing in the mud as two men were pissing in that mud. And he said it was like one of the most disturbing things he's ever seen. <gasps> mud? That, that's oh. not mud. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not, that's not, it's not mud. <laughs> I'd be okay if it was, but <laughs> I mean, wow. I feel shell-shocked <laughs> by that anecdote. I mean, this whole documentary, like in a, you know, for all of its faults, like I felt pretty shell-shocked after watching it too, just because it, I mean, I, there has been this like trend of like festivals gone wrong documentaries over the past few years with the fire festival stuff. And then, I mean, like, you know, and this is not the first festival that's gone wrong too. Like the Altamont um, Rolling Stones one depicted in Gimme Shelter obviously went very wrong for a different reason. But like this out of like the big examples of our like shared cultural lexicon, I don't know why we don't talk about this one more almost as like, a grand fiasco because like the ways the ways in which it went wrong are so like disturbing and disgusting in equal measure that I was just like I get that this was like the learning experience to of like how not to build a contemporary festival but like yeah what a disaster you know and I think I would say if we want to, like, I guess, wrap things up, Jack, I think it would be great because I think what, like this was a disaster, but it was also mm -hmm. very much like a preventable one in certain ways. So I think it'd be great if you wrapped up by, you know, just talking about some best practices about how to run a festival. I mean, I mean, just run it well, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Sure. Um, you know, hire, spend money on hiring very competent and respected teams in the most important departments, which are security, medical, police. Yes, you have to hire local police to be police at your festival. It's important. Um, you know, just the infrastructure. I mean, yeah, sanitation people who deal mm -hmm. with showers, porta potties. I mean, all of those things have to just be in place because you're creating a temporary city you're not you're not creating just a stage with music on it you're creating a place for people to live for three to four days and this specifically is applies to camping festivals mm -hmm. they're a whole different ball game than an event where people go home or go to hotels at the end of the day um that's that's when you need to bring all this infrastructure to the table um for them you just need to have really good plans um really good weather team monitoring the weather um you need to know if there's going to be extreme heat extreme humidity or extreme uh you know a storm coming through if there's going to be lightning within 30 or 10 miles of your event you need to know that you know at least an hour in advance so you can evacuate people and have right. a plan for their shelter where they're supposed to go for that um you have to have a a way to communicate to those people, whether it's just taking the microphone on stage or sending a notification through a face through a festival app, which is obviously a modern convenience that we have. Um, you know, I mean, if you're throwing a festival of that size, you already know who those top companies are. You just have to actually bite the bullet and pay to have them. Um, um, or, you know, oh, and the other thing too is make friends with your local community like don't 
like try not to be hated by them. A lot of people in these small towns will hate the fact that there's this massively disruptive event in their town mm-hmm. while the rest of the year, it's like quite a peaceful rural, whatever, uh, place to be, but, um, you gotta do your best to do right by them. Um, you know, they, they do get an economic boost from, you know, you giving jobs to a lot of the people in that community for that time that you're there. Cause it's not just the four days. It's really, there's a lot of labor that goes into building the festival and then tearing it down. It's really like, it could be a two month operation for a festival that size, maybe even three. I know Coachella could is about three to four months of, of total build and, and load out. Um, obviously they dual purpose, a lot of things for a stagecoach, the country festival too. So they get like double the bang for their buck, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just incredible amounts of planning, um, that go into that. And once you're in that position where you're doing those things, you, you know, when you're doing them right and when you're doing them wrong, if your festival is less than 10,000 people, um, corners get cut. They, you know, you don't necessarily get all the insurance you need either. Um, cancellation insurance. That's another thing. Um, if these organizers, I think for Woodstock 99, I don't know if they had cancellation insurance, but I'm guessing they didn't because otherwise day three just would not have gone all the way to the end. I think the only reason day three went to the end was because they knew that if they had to cancel, they'd be forced to refund people. But if they had that insurance, they'd at least be able to make the claim and, you know, get a bunch of money back from that. And um, Mm -hmm. honestly, that would have been in the best interest of everybody (laughs) for them to cancel day three. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got, I guess. Well, that's a lot. I mean, like for any, any, any crisis twink listener who wants to start a music festival now has a very like explicit roadmap for how to do so. (laughs) Um, and don't expect Anthony Kiedis to be your main peacemaker at the end of the day. He isn't, Anthony Kiedis is not a peacemaker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I also do their thing. That's all that's what they're there for. I just want to add before we close that Flea, the bassist of Red Hot Chili Peppers, played that entire set naked. Oh, yeah. Really see, and when you watch the full concert, that's another full performance I saw. You really get a crystal clear view of everything there. Of Wang. Yeah. (laughs) In 4K. All right. Um, Let's move on to our final segment. So we're going to play Tear the Community Apart. The rules are very simple here. I've picked two songs and you're going to tell me which one is better. Easy. Sound easy? It's not easy. It's really hard actually. And today's is really hard. Um, I have two, maybe the two anthems of the meet me in the bathroom era of NYC old rock pitted up against each other. A Clash of the Titans, the likes of which this podcast has never known before. Which song is better? Last Night by The Strokes or Daft Punk is Playing at My House by LCD Sound System? I think Last Night by The Strokes. I just like them better than LCD overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, LCD Sound System lost a lot of points for me when they... Uh, retired by crying on stage at Madison uh, Square Garden for five nights and then coming <laughs> back like what three or four years after that like nothing yeah. happened um, it was just very dramatic and 
I get the business move behind it and I don't even know if it was intentional or not, but I like the strokes. There are <laughs> Julian Casablancas is exactly who he is all the time. He's up here for me. It also must be said that today is the 20 year anniversary of the release of Is This It? So this is a historic day for wow. the for culture. Let's go. I, I will say, um, so I do agree with Jack. I, I've never been that big of an LCD sound system fan. Mm-hmm. I like select songs. I, I've never really been into them. Uh, if you do read Meet Me in the Bathroom, and if there's anyone listening who has not read Meet Me in the Bathroom, I highly recommend it. James Murphy seems like a big old douchebag, which like mm-hmm. is fine. Uh, I mean, I just don't like the music, but you know, live your life. I also want to say that I feel like they're are a lot of people who think that Room on Fire is better than Is This It? And I couldn't disagree more. I, I mean, it's just not close for me. Is This It is perfect. And Room on Fire, while very good, is not. I think every Strokes album through, I'll say it, Angles is at a base level pretty good. I like Angles just fine. And I like the, I like the, um, God, what's that first like? Um, um, not the voids. Like, what's it? What was Julian Casablanca's solo project before that? Like, Eleventh Dimension or whatever. Oh, that's was yeah. That it was void? it was just Julian Casablanca. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That that had some pretty good songs on there. Yeah, I I agree. I don't like New Abnormal at all, which is going to make friend of the podcast John Smith very mad at me. But I don't like it at all. Um. Though I, I would agree that I generally like the strokes over LCD sound system. Though I will say I like the imitate the LCD imitator bands more than I like strokes imitator bands. <laughs> That's fun. If that may, I mean, because they're these like I think you can make a pretty strong argument that these two bands are like the like cultural influence bands. Yeah, I mean, Phoenix got big essentially by. I mean, they ripped off the strokes in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, they kind of built and on it. And they've, but... they've made like LCD albums too, basically. Like I, I would argue like a lot of their like later stuff from the past like five, six years is like basically just bigger, bigger sounding LCD songs. Yeah. But wow. Okay. I thought this would be a little bit more difficult than it was. Though I, I, I fully agree with you. Like last night, like, is just so catchy like I mean honestly like every song on is the sit is like and it's not yeah it's not even my favorite song on that album Mm -hmm. but like the fact that it is like that good and it's like maybe my I don't know like fourth or fifth favorite song on the album like really says something about how good that album is yeah we do love Julian Casablancas in this chat I would honestly I would love to get him on this podcast because I feel like his emergency would be like incredible whatever he chooses to pick and I just like every interview he does is just like it's he's like on another astral plane yeah I think we was it with the New Yorker where he did that interview recently yeah I I know I sent that to both of you and we all just yeah (laughs) I guess last thing I would say is if there's a different LCD sound system song like perhaps someone great or New York I love you but you're bringing me down those are songs I like a lot, and then it would be a little harder of a choice for me. I unpopular opinion. I fucking hate New York. I love you. I 
No, no, no. I, I'm in the my. I'm in the wrong. Probably, I'm definitely in the minority on this. It sounds like the way he sings it is so like simpery to me that I just like. And this is like a James Murphy problem in general. Like, if I had to pick a my favorite LCD song is like probably "I Can Change," which is like yeah, so kind of wimpy. That's a good. Like, yeah, that's a that's another. That's one I like. Um, I also yeah. like all my friends too. Yeah, all yeah. my well, all my friends is like an inarguable like classic imagine being like 22 or 23 when that song came out like your shit must have been rocked to your core like crickets never the same i don't know what our equivalent like people our age the equivalent would be nothing i don't know yeah we have nothing we've no culture (laughs) different Everyone. I think there's just so much diversity in music right now. It's crazy. It's like mm-hmm. everyone's in their own genre silos, at least in my world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how like the the Spotify induced mono genre where everything kind of like blended into this like EDM vibey trap adjacent morass like chain smokerzy like a lot of like the vibey pop music like I think Billie Eilish is kind of like this too honestly like um that basically happened when everything was getting playlisted together like that's completely rebounded these days I think into like like genre has almost never it's been genre is the most like separate that it's been at least sonically I think in a long time and I don't know, I guess that's not, it's probably different from like a festival booking perspective and just like a, I mean, like a radio, like content programming perspective in general, but like, um, I don't know. It definitely feels like we're like back, we're like swinging out of that like pandron or phase. Well, speaking of things that are coming back, I know everyone's going to be watching uh, Limp Bizkit set tomorrow at Lollapalooza. Yes. I guess it's already happened after people have listened to this but yes tomorrow Limp Bizkit will be forming at Lollapalooza Fred Durst debuted a new aesthetic giving a little Colonel Sander vibes yeah I I didn't think he was that old I mean I get I guess I like he's in his like late 40s early 50s or whatever and he makes family film now too like he like directed like a few Disney movies back in like the late um 2000s or whatever like sports movies with Ice Cube so he's like, you know, doing a different thing, but like, I, um, yeah, I don't know. I was surprised he looked as, um, like he looked like some guy's dad, which I guess he probably is. Like, yeah. He's 50. He is 50 years old. I just looked it up. He looks like a guy named Fred Durst. <laughs> Finally. Finally. <laughs> he aged in it. He aged into it. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's a miracle. He didn't have some like kid rocky name because god forbid like what that would have been but i think we have to wrap up the episode unfortunately but thank you guys so much for being here today um where can people find you on social media if you'd like to be found um and what would you guys like to promote on this fine friday afternoon i can go first uh, I'll go public on Twitter for a bit. You can find me at mEichner1211 on Twitter. And I'm not going to promote a personal project. I did mention these earlier in the episode, but if you give any 
give much of a shit about new metal as I do, or you're at all interested, I highly recommend checking out the POD cast and Roach Coach. Both of those I listened to quite a bit during the pandemic and were a big source of joy for me. So definitely check them out. Awesome. And Jack, what about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not that interesting on social media. I don't like, I post stories of like things I do, uh, sometimes, but not even consistently, but yeah, you can, I, I it's public. It's jack.price, price being spelled P-R-E-I-S. So be careful of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone thinks it's priests and, uh, it's not, but, um, <laughs> I guess, um, since I'm here talking about music and music festivals, um, I guess my plug would be the genre that I work most closely with, which is bass music. Um, you know, it, I just, I just want to like talk about it for a second. It, if you've listened to dubstep via like the Skrillex era of 2011, 2012, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot has changed since then. Um, it became much more aggressive for a while. Um, but now just in the last like three more three years or so, uh, it's really spawned into something that's, I don't know, more diverse and rich. Like there's more psychedelic and trippy like interpretations of it. There's more um, melodic and um, uplifting and emotional artists. And now it's like this, it's like the subgenre of dub seven bass music has now developed its own subgenres. Um, and it's just really cool and welcoming. And if you find yourself at an EDM stage at a festival or being invited to a show that's bass music, you know, check it out. Um, it, I, it could be really cool. It could really change your perspective. Um, so I don't have anything I personally need you guys to check out, but just be open-minded to that type of music. It's awesome. It was an acquired taste for me. I was a hipster, you know, and, and I, as I started working more in this industry, uh, it grew on me a lot. Awesome. Um, no, that's, that's wonderful. Like, I think everyone needs to be a little bit more like, everyone needs to get like more genre agnostic as they grow older, I think, rather than like, I don't, this is like an anecdotal statistic, but like I read somewhere that like, um, basically the music that you like, listen to up to like age 22 or 23 I think is like like most people don't like progress past that music or whatever so just um yeah you know something for the fellas out there if you're listening like keep uh, reading those vlogs and like checking out new shit because it's good for you good for your brain um also check out my twitter at fkapigs with a z my Instagram at Drew Haskins with Z's, and you can subscribe to culturepig.substack.com for free weekly newsletters de- delivered directly to your inbox about various cultural topics and indignities. Um, and at the very least, when I'm lazy, I will send a nice playlist for you, which is usually pretty fun and eclectic, just like this podcast. And I, this was such a fun episode. Thank you guys for talking about this. I this documentary was like rich text for sure. And I cannot think of two better people to have broken it down with. Thank you for having us. Yeah. I had a great time. Thank you, Drew. All right. Awesome. Um, Until next time. Bye everyone. Bye guys.